If you would all please stand with me. Now I'll start my timer. <laughs> we are going to be resting in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first 32 verses. I'm not going to read them all this morning. So um, if you would just turn there. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And then I'm going to jump down to verses 31 and 32. And then we'll go into prayer. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And camped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and the, with the valley in between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which figures out to about 128 pounds. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Jumping down into verse 31 and verses 32, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. You may be seated as we go into prayer this morning. Father, as we just come before you today, I pray that you would open up our hearts and you would open up our minds to what it is the scriptures tell us. We've already talked this morning. Every, every day we get up and there's some sort of new crazy story going on, some anxiousness that we, we take a look at and we grab onto. Help us to overcome that fear, overcome that anxiety that we all have at some level that causes us at times to just freeze in our tracks and wonder what to do, whether it be a decision with work, whether it be updating and upgrading the place that you give us to worship together in, whether it be a health issue where we have Taj and Flossie still struggling, Taj especially, but yet in the midst of all of that, we wake up this morning to good news. We pray for him as we just continue to every single day. We ask for wisdom for his doctors. We ask for continued healing within his body, for strength, for protection against any kind of infection as his immune system is just not where it should be. And for Flossie, each and every day is another step forward, um, getting stronger in some ways, Lord, and all of the people who have surrounded her and have been loving her and tending to her needs and caring for her. I just pray your blessing upon her, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen her that you would continue to watch over her. Um, for John, my son, as we get to go out and we get to see him today, for Brady, Lord, I pray your blessings upon them and all of those who serve in the military. These are the things we should be focusing on before your throne, lifting all of these men and women up to you because we know that you are a good, good father and you are in control of everything, even if we don't have answers for the things that are in front of us. Father, before we enter into the scriptures this morning, I just want to pray as we're halfway through, almost more than halfway through the month of October, that we pray for our leaders. Pray for this country of ours. Just ask for wisdom. 
We ask for good sense, Lord. We ask that you would open up the eyes and the ears of every leader in this country and every person who desires to be a leader in this country. You are no respecter of persons, even when we are respecter of people. So I lift every one of them up to you, Father, and I just say that you would open their eyes and unstop their ears and soften their hearts. Encourage them to seek your face, Lord, and seek wisdom as we move forward as a country. Help us to remember what our role is as Christians in this world. Help us to remember that we honor you first and out of that honoring of you, Lord, we then step into different roles. But I pray that you would encourage us as we prayerfully seek what it is the direction is for this country that we would never at any level in any way bring reproach against the gospel or shame against your name. I ask, Father, that you would stir our hearts to love and good deeds to as the word says that we sang this morning that you're the defender of the weak. You comfort those who are in need. Jesus said to us that we are to be him for this world through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. So I lift up all of those requests. I lift up our leaders, our government, and all of our soldiers and I pray, Lord, that you would watch over them all. Bring them home to us. Reunite families. Encourage us, Lord, to figure out ways in which we can live in peace, even if that conflicts with the ways of this world. We are called to be different. Help us all, Father, to remember that. Just leave all of these things before your throne this morning as we enter into your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, Lord, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. It's good to be back in the pulpit. It's good to be back in our worship center here this morning. I've titled our message um, really kind of simply, but it's a complicated title. It's just Overcoming Obstacles. It's a simple title, but it's a big challenge. And what I really want us to focus on this week as we enter into the scriptures is that the character and the heart is revealed within the tough moments that we face, within the challenging times that we face. But our faith grows when we discover that it doesn't matter how small, quote unquote, we may be or how big our problems are that we are confronted with. We need to remember that God is always bigger than every single one of the things that we face every day. And the story that we're looking at this morning is one of those stories that transcends the pages of all of Scripture. Talking to just about anybody on planet Earth who has ever had a conflict in their life or has ever been challenged in things that are bigger than themselves and in ways that they don't know how to address, they always talk about their what? Their Goliaths that they face. It's just a term that gets used. Those challenges are those people which seem to be too big to confront or to handle or to overcome in the midst of your day and all of the things that you're dealing with. We all have them. We've all had them in our life. Issues within our lives and within our families that just seem too big for us to deal with. It's one of those favorite Sunday school things. Remember the old flannel graphs? I like to bring those up because I never had them when I was a kid, but 
It's one of those favorites of the Sunday school flannel graphs and the kids' church teachings all over the United States and all over the world for that matter. Now, Bill Arnold, who's the commentator that I read in for 1 and 2 Samuel, summarizes this story quite well when we take a look at the scriptures as he seeks to tackle it as not just one of the Sunday school favorites and from a little kid's perspective when he says this, many of us become familiar with the details of the story in our early childhood and with good reason. Who among us has not felt the terror caused by a bully like Goliath? The giant of a man who boasts as though he's invincible and appears to have the goods to back up his bravado. And who of us can resist the innocence of a young shepherd boy who simply cannot understand why this culprit is permitted to defy the armies of the living God? Now, truth be told, none of us can resist such stories like this when we really think about it. Movies and books are all themed around the little guy taking over the big guy and winning the battle when all the odds are against him. He's being bullied and somehow after one too many times of being hung in the gym locker or picked on on the gym uh, playground there, he's finally had enough. The young man or the young lady decides to stand on their ground and to find more often than not that the giant that's been standing in front of them and pushing them around wasn't quite as big as they thought after all. And then the giant finds out in the midst of this little pipsqueak challenging them there on the playground that it's a lot harder to knock that little person down than they figured because all of a sudden they have the courage to stand up and say something about what's going on. You see, fear freezes people. Fear freezes people. Now, I've talked about this before, but fear is a primary, if not the primary reason why we never move forward into new and different things. We become so very comfortable with where we are, even though we know it's not the right place for us to be, but fear freezes us. We begin to believe the lie that whatever is in front of us is just simply too much, too big, and too impossible for us to overcome. So we don't even attempt to step in to change the things that are in front of us. Fear is the tool of the enemy, is it not? If Satan can't get you to stop believing in God, in fact, he doesn't really care that you believe in him, just so long as he can get you to be afraid of doing anything different. You see, fear gives way to doubt. Doubt then leads to inaction. And there we stay in the same spot. Satan really doesn't care if you believe in God, just so long as you don't act on what you believe. Stepping into what it is God is challenging you to do makes the enemy fearful himself. But if he can get you to freeze, he's put you where he needs to be. Because fear is the tool of the enemy. Every once in a while, we need a little pipsqueak to come along into our story and say to us, what's the issue here? What is really going on inside of your heart? And why don't you do anything about this big bully standing right in front of you? Every once in a while, we need that. And that's just what we discover here in this story in 1 Samuel 17. In the midst of this entire episode that's been given to us here in Scripture, we see the hearts of Saul and we see the hearts of David revealed to us in the Scripture. We discover that when God chose David, he actually knew what he was doing. Surprise of surprises. When he went to Jesse's house, he picked the right person. Why? Because if we continue to read this story, we discover that his brothers, while looking really good, We're doing so from the comfortable confines of their fortified trenches. They weren't out on the battlefield doing what they're supposed to. They were completely afraid of this one giant man 
Now, we're going to talk a little bit more on that in a few minutes, but as the writer records for us, starting in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Demim. You see, herein lies the issue for us with Scripture. We get so comfortable with it that we read as quickly as we can because we want to jump to the point where David puts a rock right between the eyes of the big oaf that's been yelling at everybody. And we skim over some of the most important parts of these chapters. You see, because we don't want to read all the stuff in the middle. We want to get to the cool part where the little pipsqueak takes out the giant. But there's a whole lot of stuff going on in between. And we're going to take a couple of weeks to do that. We have to ask ourselves why it is we're here in the first place. That's what we really have to do. Because the Philistines had decided at some point or another to double-dog dare Israel to get them out of their land. And they did so by invading a place that they had no cause to. You see, they marched into Soko and they simply set up shop. They decided, we're going to go here and we're just going to test the waters and see how far we can go. Now, that land belonged to who? The text tells us it belonged to Judah. That's who. It wasn't Philistine land. And we discover right away that that's that's what God has done, or what we discover right away why it is that God is done with Saul as king in the text. And also why he's a king like all the others and why it was he encouraged the people of Israel that they weren't supposed to go down that road. He doesn't gather his army and go on the offensive at all when these people just decide we're going to come into your land, does he? It's not what the text tells us. His country has been invaded without cause and what does he do? He gathers up his army, which is what he's supposed to do, and then he sets them up in a defensive position and waits. It says here that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a big valley in between or with a valley in between them. What kind of leader does that? A bad one. That's what kind. What the Philistines did in that time and that day and age was a dare. We're going to see how far we can get into this land with, without being stopped. So Saul just draws up and waits. You see, how a leader functions at times just like this determines the attitude and the action of his followers. How we act as leaders, how we respond as leaders determines the actions and the attitude of followers. Saul shows no ambition or even any anger at the fact that the people have invaded his country and put his entire people at risk. None at all. Instead, he gathers the army. They set up shop on one side of the valley while the Philistines are set up on the other. And then he waits. Why? It's a question I ask myself. Why? Because Saul was afraid. And everybody would be afraid. Let's think about it for a minute. I would. If I was responsible for this, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. I would be concerned and I would be afraid. That's what a smart leader would be. That's never the issue. Okay, that's a healthy fear. Okay, you see, we see his character here in this moment because what we find is the reason why God had removed his hand from him. Saul is in fear and he freezes instead of seeking God. He just freezes. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, what are you doing here and what are we supposed to do? He freezes and he doesn't even bother seeking the Lord. Instead of looking for God's leading in the situation, he just sets up shop and waits. 
Okay, let's see how this is going to play out. That is a very, very dangerous thing to do because it causes fear to grow amongst the people who are sitting behind you waiting to see what you're doing. And that's not a good way to be. You see, what's worse is that they knew that Saul was afraid and they knew he wasn't doing anything at all about it. They could see the fear in their king. No one will ever follow a man like that. No one will ever follow a man like that because fear paralyzes every single one of us as human beings. It causes us to create scenarios in our own minds which seldom come to reality, but they're very real here. I might be alone in this, but I suspect probably not. Because then we make decisions all based upon that fear that we've created within our mind and within our hearts rather than in the confidence that God has given us in himself. And we're operating outside of where we should be because he assures us that he is with us in every single situation. His covenantal promise says that I am with you until the end of the age. So whether we feel it or not, he is with us. So David, this little shepherd boy, shows up again after we get the description of the bully on the battlefield. And guess what we discover? We discover that he's splitting time between that battlefield and running home and taking care of the sheep for his dad. So he's like, you know, bivocational here going on at 12, 13, or 14 years old. The scriptures tell us this. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Again, a key thing to remember, because that means that this oldest son, who's going to be a player here in a minute, would be the one taking over the clan. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle, and the names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. Very important, again, to understand. They're playing flip-flopped roles here as we move forward. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. What's interesting to me here is that we also get a hint of the character of David's brothers within this story as we read. His three older brothers, we discover, are serving in Saul's army. That's not a bad thing. They had the courage to do that, but I suspect Saul had probably conscripted them. It was something that they were supposed to do. And showing clearly why it was when Samuel thought that these three gents had all it took to be the king because they looked the part, God said to Samuel, no, these three don't have what I'm looking for. Pass them over, look for another. We discover in verse 28, in fact, the true character of his oldest brother and the presumed leader of the clan when his dad passes away. This speaks to him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, I know what you're trying to do. You're going to come down here and see how bad we look, and you're going to go tell Dad. And we're not going to look very good. That's not what he was doing. You see, and what I find amazing here is that Eliab actually knows that this little runt is the anointed king. Because he was there, remember. So he knows that David is the king. And what we get revealed here is his response. Here comes that king. What are you looking to do? You see, the notion that David had evil intent in his heart, that's what Eliab's saying, speaks volumes to what's actually in the heart of Eliab instead, doesn't it? Not in the heart of David, but what's in the heart of Eliab. Cowards and those who fear their circumstances rule them 
or let their circumstances rule them will always belittle. They will always insult. They will always question. They will always be critical of everything and they will always threaten anyone who makes them look bad or challenges their motives. When you are operating in fear, we act in ways that we normally wouldn't and shouldn't. And it comes out just the way it did with Eliab. He belittled, he insulted, he questioned, he was critical, and he threatened. That's what happens. There's always opposition for leaders when leaders move people in places that make them uncomfortable. Remember that. Okay? If there is no opposition to you in your life, you're probably not doing a whole lot that needs to have opposition against. So take heart. If there's a lot of opposition in your life, there's probably some things going on that are good. And remember that these guys haven't exactly been the picture of courage for the last month, and yet they're insulting this little man, David, aren't they? We're told for 40 days the Philistines came forward and took their stand, or took his stand, morning and evening. Now again, what does the text tell us? Philistine is not plural. It's singular. That means for 40 days, this big dopey oaf, all dressed up in the best armor you could find, walks out onto the edge of the divide in front of the army, threatened and mocks an entire army of people on the other side of the valley. So they're not even face to face. I mean, it's going to take some work to get over there. Threatens an entire army and all they do is stand there and cower in fear. Now David knew how to do a lot of things. But if you've read anything at all about the son of Jesse, and I encourage you to read 1 and 2 Samuel, he knew how to do a lot of things. But standing down in the face of big challenges was not one of the things that David was good at. He knew what to do in order to protect sheep and people around him. C.H. Spurgeon once said, Oh, my brethren, bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. Eliab did not like what David was doing and saying. His very presence was convicting him because he wasn't doing anything. David was a threat to his brothers because he wasn't threatened by this Goliath at all, who had an entire army paralyzed in their place with nothing more than a big mouth and a fat head. They weren't moving. David was there for no other reason than to bring food to his brothers and get a report. That was what his dad had told him. He was being obedient. Starting in verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Go give them some food. Tend to them. Serving. Also take these ten cheeses to the commanders of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. In other words, go feed them. Make sure their commanders have food. Make sure they're okay and let me know what's going on. Go on about your way. That's it. I can't imagine that deep down these boys didn't want dear old dad back at home knowing that they had dug a trench and it's all they can do to get up out of that trench in the morning and let some big old goofy guy yell at them. Verse 19 is quite interesting as well in this story. I find if we watch this, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. I find that interesting. I've read this story a thousand times, I haven't read it once, and this really struck me this time. It says that Saul and all his army were doing what? Fighting the Philistines. But that's not really what's going on, is it? Not at all. They had become so paralyzed by this huge obstacle and playground bully named Goliath standing in front of them, who, by the way, did nothing more than get up every morning, 
doing the same old foolishness, yelling at them, and now all of a sudden, Saul and all his Israelites are fighting? That's not what's going on. And all Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Now, he's thinking they're fighting. So he leaves all the stuff behind the lines, and he wants to run out and just see how this whole gig's going to happen. And this is what he discovers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So here comes the big goof lumbering out. David sees this. Everybody turns around and goes back to their ditches. So an application here this morning for us, we have to realize something. We get so comfortable in and with what we are doing and so used to it, in fact, even if it's wrong, ineffective, or just downright counterproductive, that we settle in and we make excuses, calling it something that it isn't. They were fighting? No, they weren't. You were going out, you were being smack-talked by this goof for 40 days, and then you went and hid. They've been doing this foolishness for so long that it had become their new normal. And they didn't see anything at all wrong with it or any way out of it. One man with a big mouth and a fat head had completely disheartened an entire army of men. That's how dangerous fear is. So dangerous fear is. In part because their king did absolutely nothing in response. He was just as scared as they were. Bible tells us that as the king goes, what? So goes the country. And that, my friends, is something we must remember. As the king goes, so goes the country. How easy is it to get there if we aren't careful as God's people? How easy? We will never realize that that's where we are until we see something different or someone comes along and asks the hard question of, hey, what's your problem here? What's going on with you? It's just one guy. You do know that, right? One guy. That's what David's saying. I mean, what's the deal? Are you missing something that I'm not here? One guy. All these guys who lined up for their daily ritual of ridicule and cowardice come running back to the trenches after Goliath says what he does. And here is David, God's anointed king of the people of Israel, in absolute shock. Utter shock. And quoting Arnold again from his commentary in relation to seeing the difference between King Saul, the king that the people of Israel wanted, and King David, the people, or the king that God knew the people needed, he says this, within this narrative, and I quote, confirms implicitly the truth stated more explicitly in chapter 16. The Lord had withdrawn his blessing from Saul, who is now king in name only. Because of his refusal to accept Yahweh's authority, Saul had forfeited his right to remain king of Israel. Now he is ineffectual and powerless to produce deliverance from the Philistines. In the face of Goliath, Saul seemed paralyzed. David appear, appears to bear all the marks of spirit-filled leadership. A new set of eyes. A brand new perspective sees things as they really are. One guy, big attitude, 
big obstacle, sure. Bigger God, more powerful spirit, and he is on our side. Doesn't matter how big the obstacle is. Understand also in this as an aside that we always, and I include myself in this, we always know really what's going on with people. We can say lots of things, but if we are observant to the actions and to the words and to the attitude of people who presume to lead, that's a lot more telling than a 30-second soundbite in our world today. Be prayerful. You see, our God is way bigger than the systems that we create. Way bigger. You see how foolish you look cowering before this one man, I can hear David saying. He scares you to death with words. With words. I want you to understand something. Do you see here how powerful words are? are I get tired of hearing oh words don't matter words don't matter people are so sensitive because words hurt really right here in our Bible words froze an entire army words matter things people say make a difference how people respond, the nasty things that come out of their mouths matter. If we're going to represent our king, we need to be careful. And I think left to this cycle, myself, the army of Israel under Saul would have become so disheartened that they would have given up the fight without ever having fought. In fact, they were already there. They gave up the fight without ever even fighting, simply out of fear of what might happen to them. And that's something we need to take away today. We're always afraid of what might happen. This world plays on our fears. Remember that. We don't serve this world. And this world plays on our fears. It's the classic tool of the enemy because that's something that can and does happen in our lives. We are motivated by fear. Happens here in our church, Little C, right here at Virgin's community, right here. And it happens in the church universal. We get so afraid of what might happen, of what this world might do, of what somebody might take away from us that we forget. We serve a God who is above all of this nonsense. Be very, very careful, my friends. Be very careful. We can lose sight of God in the midst of it all, most especially as our culture closes in around us and we begin to panic. Instead of seeing it for what it is, and what it really is is an opportunity for God to be glorified in and through the lives of his people. When we can show this world how it really means to live in the power and the anointing of God and the Holy Spirit and what we're supposed to do. We instead become afraid. We circle the wagons and we try like anything to preserve what it is we have. We can't let them take it away. It's not what we're called to do as God's church in this world. We are called to action. An action that is cloaked, as I said Wednesday night, in the love of Christ. 
action that is cloaked in the love of Christ, even in the face of bitter opposition and anger and all kinds of nasty things that get spewed out. We don't go down into those trenches with them. We discover a different sort of character that's within this little shepherd king as we come to verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go fight with this Philistine. Now that's a verse to hang your hat on. Remember, he was the youngest of them all. He's the littlest one, not even old enough to do battle back and forth watching the sheep, he goes to the king who ain't doing nothing and says, don't worry about it. Let this whole army just relax. I'll go fight him. Not a problem. We'll learn what that works out like and how that looks in the weeks to come. But this is why David and not his brothers was anointed king. You see, the size of the problem was no problem. In fact, it wasn't the problem at all. Not for David. Focus, trust, and faith, or lack thereof, on the part of the people of Israel, of Saul and his army, was actually the problem. A lack of focus, a lack of trust, and a lack of faith that God would do what he said. Saul and his army saw Goliath, and they said, no way, too big, never going to happen, without ever trying or lifting a finger. The Philistines had won the battle of the mind, and they'd won the battle of the will. And they never fired shot. It's all because of fear. David took one of him and said, my God's got this. What right has this fool have to defy God's army? Somebody help me understand why this clown keeps doing what he's doing. Don't worry, king. I'll fight him. Not a problem. Right there is a servant leader. Right there is a messianic type leader. didn't matter what was in front of him. It's not foolhardiness, remember, on David's part. It is a settled confidence in God, which declares to the world, our God is bigger than anything you got. I'm going to say that again. He's not crazy. It's not a foolhardiness. It is a settled confidence in God, which declares to the world that my God is bigger than anything you have got. Ultimately, this issue was settled on the cross. And let's look at the reality of it. We're the biggest giant which holds this entire world in bondage even still today, which is death itself, was defeated through a little carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. He didn't look much the part either, did he? He was mocked, he was ridiculed, made fun of, doubted by those who followed him, was even accused of being a liar. And yet, he won the victory by being a servant and understanding that my God is bigger than all you've got to throw at me. We live in a day, my friends, where doubt, where fear, and where the great unknown is before us. We can't get around that. Sometimes we act as though the problems facing us are just too big to handle. And we muckle onto the horns of those problems and we say, we're going to try and make this work as best as we can with what we've got. That ain't what David did. It's not what David did. Because the problems are too big for us to handle. Perhaps they are. 
But it's not the call of the church to ever circle the wagons, dig in, and hope we don't lose more ground. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. That's not our call. It's not our job. No, the enemy wants that. But God is sovereign. We need to remember that. No matter what happens, he is in control and he is bigger than all. I could have the worship team, please. You see, and I want you to hear this. We can never sacrifice the credibility of our king for what we deem to be the preservation of our rights and our personal positions. I've searched the Bible high and low for a way in which I can do that. But we can never sacrifice the credibility of our king for what we deem to be the preservation of our rights and our assumed positions. We can't. God is bigger than that and he commands his people to be the same. We can't be driven by fear. We cannot be driven by hatred. These are tools of the enemy and they are tools of a fallen world. We cannot be driven that way. We are what we call new creation people. If we are in Christ, we are a community of believers who are new creation people living in the victory that Jesus has already secured and are to be his people for his world today. You see, John tells us that the kingdoms of this world have become what? The kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Again, the wording there is important. Have become, not will become, they are. Jesus owns this place. And he told us, let the world know that I own it. Encourage them to come to me. You see, this isn't something in the future. It's now in the church. Big C has a lot of work to do in this world if we are to represent Christ the way we are supposed to. Now, Albert Moeller just wrote this past week in one of his articles. And I want you to hear this as well. The credibility of the gospel is at stake every time we attempt to compromise in order for our personal safety and space to be protected and preserved. Saul had no desire to change where he was. He was alive. He'd let that guy talk to him all day long. But he wasn't free, was he? He wasn't, okay? We have to be careful. The credibility of the gospel is at stake every time we attempt to compromise in order for our own personal safety and space to be protected and preserved as though our God is not sufficient for the time in which we live. As if he's different today than he was 2,000 years ago or since the days of eternity. This is why the church today is laughed at and ridiculed. Not because we're different than the world, but because we look so much like the world and at the same time we're claiming to be different than the world. We have to be very careful, my friends. We can't and we must not continue that way. The world needs the prophetic voice of God in and through his people. And that happens when we become David to Goliath. Okay? He is able to deliver us. He is bigger than anything we are facing. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we are willing to risk dying to ourselves every day and stepping out onto the field of battle with his armor and not our own devices, he will deliver us. And we will find that God will win that day through and through. The difference is, is that he does it through us today. We are his voice in this world. Are we like David? Or are we like Saul in the armies? We could stand. Fathers, we just close in this last song. If I could have the prayer teams take their places around the worship center, please. I want to encourage you here today. We are a community of believers here. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And part of what we do is we covenant together before God our Father in prayer. If your heart's being stirred this morning or if you're struggling with anything in your life, I I challenge you to step out of where you are, be bold this morning, and come to the people who are around the worship center. Ask them to pray with you. Father, as we come into dark times, we'd be blind if we didn't say otherwise. Remind us. Teach us. And command us. You are in control. You are sovereign over all of the affairs of humanity. And our duty is to simply be like David. Remember that you are way bigger than anything that stands in front of us. You are way bigger than any challenge. You are way bigger than any government. You are way bigger than any system. And you are way bigger than any evil in this world. And we are called to be like David. Who are you to defy the living God? Encourage each of us, Lord, this week in every situation we face to seek your face to be emboldened with the infilling of your Holy Spirit, to be encouraged by one another and by your word, to step into those things that you call us to wherever we find ourselves this week, in our place of work, at home, just out and about at a restaurant or wherever it may be. Help us to be your people for your world. I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Jake.